Let's turn in our Bibles to Galatians chapter 2, Galatians chapter 2, verse 15, the classic text on that to be justified or to be declared, declared righteous before God is by faith in Christ Jesus, not by works of the law or observing the law. And so we come to this text, just reading to the end of the chapter. We won't do a detailed exposition, but we'll be visiting many different texts as we try to understand what is faith or what is true faith, what is true faith. And so with the Word of God open before us, let's read God's Word to us, His people. We who are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners know that a man is not justified by observing the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus so that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by observing the law. Because by observing the law, no one will be justified. If while we seek to be justified in Christ, it becomes evident that we ourselves are sinners, does that mean that Christ promotes sin? Absolutely not. If I rebuild what I destroy, I prove that I'm a lawbreaker. For through the law I died to the law so that I might live for God. I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God. For if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. With our Bibles open, just, I want us to turn in uh, the, the Heidelberg Catechism to the Word section, page 14, in fact, page 14, to question and answer 21. What is true faith? That's the question. What is true faith? What is true faith? And I, I'm going to read the answer. Just follow along. True faith is not only a knowledge and conviction that everything God reveals in His Word is true, it is also a deep-rooted assurance created in me by the Holy Spirit through the gospel that out of sheer grace earned for us by Christ, not only others but I too have had my sins forgiven, have been made forever right with God, and have been granted salvation? A glorious question and answer in the catechism. Question and answer 21. And so we're going to be looking at that catechism, the structure in our outline uh, tonight as we look at what is true faith. There is still this mystery, isn't there, when we talk about faith? We know faith has an object. The object is God Himself, right? Triune, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But what is it? Well, the nearest thing that kids is trust, right? Some of you kids, I'm thinking about the, uh, the DeBoer girls, when your daddy throws you up in the air, will your daddy catch you? Yes, he will. You trust that, don't you? You trust that to be true. Uh, that's sort of like that, but it still seems bigger than that, though, as when we go through Scripture much deeper and wider and higher than that. 
That's part of it. Like we trust our daddies and our mommies to catch us and to care for us. But it's more. And as we look at what true faith is, the catechism does direct us that it, faith has the knowledge of God's Word, right? It's a knowledge and conviction that everything God says in His Word is true. But you have to have knowledge to know God, don't you? A, a faith without knowledge is a faith in nothing as an object. If you, if you don't know the one in whom you are to have faith, there's just nothing there. You need this knowledge. You see that in Psalm 1, as the first psalm of the Psalter, the 150 begins with a man who delights in the Word of God. And on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water which yields its fruit in season and whose leaves do not wither. Whatever he does prospers. What is necessary for us to flourish in our relationship with God is to know Him, which means we need to know His Word. It can't be shut. It has to be open. If we are to know Him, if we are to know the one we are trusting in. Now, granted, when we first came to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, many of us were wee little children, or maybe teenagers, and we didn't know that much, but we did know something, didn't we? we? We did know who God was, and we were taught the catechisms, as a, even as little children, question and answers, and the Sunday school, and our mom and dad would read the scriptures at the dinner table or at the bedside. We, we did know something about the one in whom we put our trust. So it is fundamental that we know God. Which means if you are an older saint, you're not even close to done. Because you have an infinite being whose knowledge seems to be exhaustible. And I've been reading Scripture for a long period of time. And I, feel still, I still feel quite ignorant. Because there's so much more to know about God. But it's also not only a knowledge, it's a conviction, isn't it? That everything God says in His Word is true. It's true. It's God's Word. Now, James reminds us about, well, demons. He says this, you believe that there is one God. You believe in the Shema. You believe in Deuteronomy 6, verse 4. Behold, behold, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. Right? The, the great statement of monotheism. And of course, James, we do believe, was primarily writing to Jewish Christians. So you believe that there is one God, good. Even the demons believe that. And they shudder. Right? We know that if Satan was to take a theological exam, he would get an A+. He would get all the extra credit right. He knows exactly who God is. He knows that God is one. But he has revealed himself in three persons. He knows exactly who God is. But we see here the demons and Satan himself shudder. They believe these truths. But their, faith, their belief does not lead to obedience, does it? It does not lead to delight 
It does not lead to living. In fact, the conviction is opposite. I believe everything in God's Word is true. If that is so, what does that mean for you? It's not just information, is it? It's something you live by. It's your lamp in a dark place. It's the light for your path so that you might not stumble. It's something you put into practice. And so you memorize it and you study it and you, like Jeremiah, you eat the scroll. And there we have a Bible reading program called Bible Eaters. And tonight we'll be meeting for anyone that would want to. There's a few people who are reading the Bible Eaters um, scripture plan, and we're going to be meeting after the service at 6.30 there. And I have even some soup. I got some Mediterranean bean soup, okay? So I will actually feed you a light meal, but we can talk about the Word of God, that we, we have a knowledge and conviction, right, that everything God says in His Word is true. That means it is for my edification, it is for my building up, me up, but it's also for the building up of each other as the saints, that's what faith is. Now, I love how Hebrews states it in the beginning of chapter 11, the, the, the chapter of faith, right? You have the, the hall of faith of the Old Testament saints. But Hebrews 11.1 1 begins this way. Now, faith is being sure of what you hope for and certain of what you do not see. We know the Old Testament saints did not see much of this. They only saw it in shadows, in the sacrificial system, in the law in the king, and the high priest, and the prophets, but they saw, again, them only in shadows. And then he continues on, this is what the ancients were commended for, this faith, this trust in God, with, with a certainty, a surety, even though they had never seen it, even though Abraham had never possessed it. They believed, didn't they? They believed. And by faith, we understand that the universe was formed by God's command so that what is seen was not made out of what was visible. And of course, he's referring to the first chapter of Genesis, isn't he? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. From nothing, all things came into being. So faith is clearly a knowledge and conviction that everything God says in his word is true. But faith has a deep-rooted assurance, doesn't it, in the God who saves. Faith has a deep-rooted assurance in the God who saves. A deep-rooted assurance in God's power. I do believe that is necessary. We need to have a childlike, deep-rooted assurance in God's power. Example of who that might be? We know a guy, his name was Abraham. Abraham, you look in Romans chapter 4, verse 18, you see a man of deep-rooted assurance in God's power. It says, against all hope. Abraham in hope believed and so became the father of many nations, just as it has been said to him, so shall your offspring be. Without weakening in his faith, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead since he was about a hundred years old and that Sarah's womb was also dead. Yet, he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God. 
but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had power to do what he had promised, even though his body was as good as dead, even though it appeared that it was against all hope that God could fulfill this promise, Abraham believed that God could. He could do what was impossible. Now, this assurance, where did it come from? Did it come from a pagan who lived in Ur and immigrated to Haran? And for some reason, he just had deeper faith than the rest of us. Who created that in him? Where did that mystery come from? From God himself. Because he's just like us, isn't he? Yes, he had this faith against all hope that God had the power to fulfill his promise, although everything in his life, every biological reality was saying, this is impossible through Sarah's womb. This is impossible through me. Yet, he did not waver. Didn't you love the language that, that Paul uses? Even then, he did not waver because he had this deep-rooted assurance in God's power that defied everything around him, that defied the paganism in which he was brought up in, in the city of Ur, that defied everything in Haran, that defied everything that he saw when he walked the land of Cana, more wicked than any other place on the face of the world at the time. And yet he still trusted in God's promise. Of course, there's a deep-rooted assurance in God's love, isn't there? True faith has this deep-rooted assurance that God loves me. He loves me. Yes, despite my sin, despite my sin and misery, He loves me. You hear that language in the Apostle Paul, who loved me and gave himself for me. Do you hear the personal language? Not just for others, but for me. For me. For you, a deep-rooted assurance. Knowledge does not create that. Knowledge does not create that. It's something mysterious. It's God's power at work in us, as Paul says in Romans. But in all these things, we are overwhelmingly conquered through him who loved us. I'm using a different translation than the NIV, for I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything in other in all created things will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing will be able to separate us from God's love in Christ Jesus our Lord. He doesn't know about all the forces of the universe. He doesn't know how they're arrayed completely and utterly against his kingdom. He doesn't have all those experiences, and yet he has this deep-rooted assurance in God's love. And the third, a deep-rooted assurance in Jesus' constant intercession. We read some of this this morning in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14, which we sang about in, in the Songs for Worship, number 36. But it states this, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has gone through he the heavens, 
Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but we have one who has been tempted, tested, tried in every way, just as we are, yet without sin. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. That's why we can come so readily to the throne room of grace, can't we? That's why we can go to, the, to God the Father through Jesus the Son, the interceding and pleading Son who pleads our case before His Father. And I can come with confidence. That should change your prayer life, shouldn't it? It's not that there's no reverence here. There's all kinds of reverence, but the one whom we approach took on bodily form and was tempted in every way as we are, tested in every way as we are, but without sin, so he understands the depth of our weakness. Isn't that wonderful? I mean, we repeat these truths again and again, but they should always, like, go unbelievable. But we believe it. We believe it to be true. This deep-rooted assurance in Jesus' constant intercession. That's why the doctrine of the ascension is not some minor doctrine in the doctrines of the Christian church. It's an essential one because Christ took his rightful place at the right hand of God the Father and continues to minister to the church through that office of high priest in heaven. And in fact, we know that even our own flesh, human form, is in the presence of God the Father Almighty in the person and work of Jesus Christ, in whom we are grafted in and united. Now, of course, this deep-rooted assurance of God's power, of God's love, of Jesus' constant intercession, well, it was created in us by the Holy Spirit through the gospel, wasn't it? Faith was, is created by the Holy Spirit through the gospel. There's a woman. You probably remember her name, Lydia. She was a purple-dyed dealer in the city of Philippi. That's where she was residing. She was from Thyatira, of course, where they had the, the seashells in order to make the purple dye. But you pick up in Acts chapter 16, verse 14, and we see one of those listening was a woman named Lydia, dealer in purple cloth from the city of Thyatira, who was a worshiper of God or a God-fearer. But there wasn't enough elders to make, there wasn't enough elders to make a synagogue, so there was no synagogue in Philippi, so they would have had to worship outside of the city. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. Paul brings the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. But who opens the heart? It says the Lord. Or you could say the Lord Jesus Christ or the Spirit of the Lord Jesus Christ, which is the Holy Spirit. Opened up her heart to receive the message of the Apostle Paul, just like the Philippian jailer. Remember him? Just like the Philippian jailer. But again, that is a work of the Holy Spirit in you. Not because you were born in a Christian Reformed church. True faith is not about address. It's not because you went to the right schools or you married the right people. True faith comes by a wondrous working of the Holy Spirit in us. That's what Scripture says. 
That's how Lydia came to faith. And in fact, all who are with outside of the church or within the church come to faith through the working of the Holy Spirit. And this faith created in us by the Holy Spirit continues its work of sanctification. Right now, right now it's happening in you. Now Paul writes a prayer or what he's praying for the church at Ephesus. It's a glorious text, and I wanted to read it. It says, I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation. It appears that you and I, although indwelt with the Holy Spirit, although we have come to faith through the Holy Spirit, through the preaching of the gospel, we are still in need of the work of the Holy Spirit to give us wisdom and revelation, to again, assist us in discerning God's word for our edification and the edification of his church and the salvation of the world. And then he says, so that you may know him better. See, the Holy Spirit indwells you so that you might know Jesus better, so that you might know the Father better, that you might know the triune God better. I love that. So true faith is never done. True faith is active. It's working in us even now. It's not a one-time moment. It is is an all-time moment in which we are constantly trusting in God, placing our faith in God. In verse 18, he says this, I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you. It appears that you and I need to continually be what? Encouraged by the hope. We need greater amounts. We need to be furthered in our knowledge and understanding of the gospel of Jesus Christ so that we might have, well, greater delight. Like the man who meditates on the word day and night. He's the man that delights in the word of God because he delights in God, because God is speaking to him through the word. Then he says, verse 10, and his incomparably great power for us who believe, who have faith. That power is like the working of his mighty strength, which is exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every title that can be given, not only in this present age, but also in the one to come. And that power is in work in you. The power to raise the dead. The power to have Jesus ascend to the right hand of God the Father. That power, I mean, I'm talking about God's word here. This is not my opinion. That power is in you by the Spirit. Aren't you glad? that you were supernaturally born? Aren't you glad of that work of faith by the Spirit that's never done with you, that doesn't give up on you, but always draws you back? That's the perseverance of the saints, right? You can see with the Holy Spirit's presence, oh, the perseverance of the saint because sweetness. I didn't forget the sweet fellowship, but we have a sweet fellowship with the Holy Spirit. Faith is humble, isn't it? It's humble because you you can't conjure it up, can you? Again, you go back to the text. You're not justified by works of the law, are you? Because you're good enough for God. 
None of us will be justified by our works, by our obedience to God's law. It is only by faith in Jesus Christ and his finished work on the cross and his perfect righteousness that any of us will be justified. Isn't that what Paul is explaining here in Galatians chapter 2, verse 16? It's clearly by faith. And Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8, you know this text quite well, don't you? For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. So faith is always humble. I think it's an important thing to hear, especially in the Christian Reformed Church. Why do I say that? Because... Often within the Christian Reformed Church, I think with every communion that I have ever been here, there can be a spiritual pride that is not necessary, that is unneeded. Like, I've heard it before when I went to seminary and when I, you know, was in Grand Rapids, that we have so much to give to the church. No, the Lord Jesus Christ has so much to give to the church in the power of his Holy Spirit. We are simply messengers. We are simply ambassadors. We are simply servants. And all that we have is being given to us by God. What's there to brag about? What's there to boast about? And if we know about how God saves, there's nothing to boast about, is there? Except to say, thank you, Jesus. It's all what you have done. That's why I'm here. That's why I'm persevering. That's why I will be in glory, and that's why I will receive the crown of righteousness. It's because of what you did, Lord Jesus. Oh, Holy Spirit, that indwells me. That resurrection, ascension power. Not me. So, of course, it's humble. It's all what God has done. And verse 10 does say it beautiful. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for, for us to do. Piers, it's all him. Isn't that awesome? We should be celebrating this truth. It's all what God has done. Oh, it frees the heart to obey. It frees the heart. Because what we know about faith, it's personal, isn't it? What did Paul say at the end of verse 20? They're glorious words. I want to repeat those words in verse 20 of Galatians 2. And we'll end here. I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live. But Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but he lives in me. It's personal, isn't it? True faith is personal. God dwelling in us, among us. And Paul's clear, who loved me who died for me. Do you know Christ like that? Do you know him like that? Because you ought to. Because that's the point of the gospel, that you might know God and how much he loves you and what he's done and how he saved you and called you by faith. And that itself is a gift. That's the beauty of the gospel. It's that gospel, though, that makes us want to obey. That's that gospel that makes us want to share and to give our lives as he gave his life for us. 
brothers and sisters in Christ Jesus. <sighs> May God richly bless you this week as you live in the beautiful, beautiful, glorious reality of that truth. That we are justified not by the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ who loved me and gave his life for me. Glory be to Jesus. Let's pray. Father in heaven, your word is life because you speak. And when you speak, dead things come to life. When you speak, nothing becomes something. Oh, may it be so in us as we take up the word that you would create in us, O oh Holy Spirit, a deeper knowledge, a deeper love of God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Bless your saints. Bless them in pursuit of Christ that you might be glorified in us and that we would be, well, would enjoy you forever. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.